This is well. This is the Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM. Today is February 8th, and my name is Jake Clark. With me in the studio is... Christine Kim. And... Jessica Lynn. We are broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam territory, in case you thought we moved. Now, on today's show, we will be... It's a very packed show today, fellas. We will be playing an interview with legendary Vancouver climber Glenn Woodsworth and be promoting an upcoming dance party right here in the city. We've also got a book review and theater review by Jess and a couple theater reviews by yours truly. Love this town, you know. So to start off, the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival, because of course that's a thing, is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Care to comment? I do. Uh, so the Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival has clearly been going on for decades. For, for, for two, two decades. Two decades. Um, and Glenn Woodsworth um, shared with me, or will be sharing his stories about his experience exploring and discovering much of the coastal mountains for the festival. And I got to actually hear some of those stories in person um, through this interview that we're about to start off the show with. Uh, so I hope you guys like it, and we won't be playing the full thing. We'll only be playing a bit of it, but we can. We're gonna be the arts report is going to be giving you more information on where to find the full version of the interview um, afterwards. All right, here it is. The Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival is bringing a ski and climbing show to UBC to mark its 20th anniversary. On Wednesday, February the 15th at 7.30 p.m. at the Freddie Wood Theatre, two Vancouver-based climbers by the name of Glenn Woodsworth and Dick Culbert will be speaking about their experience mountaineering the Coast Mountain back in the 1960s. Their speeches will be followed by four films featured at the festival and will be followed the next evening by three film screenings on skiing. The Arts Report got to speak with Glenn Woodsworth about the basics of climbing in the 1960s and the incredible challenges both he and his fellow climbers faced discovering new peaks and trails. My name is Glenn Woodsworth, and I'm here to talk a little bit about what I'm presenting at the Film Festival in a few weeks at Freddie Wood. The Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival is going to be having its 20th anniversary, and you yourself are a guest speaker alongside uh, Dick Culbert. So tell me about what you guys are hoping to share with the audience that day on February the 15th. Uh, Dick and I are both old VOC members from the 60s, uh, the early 60s, uh, and we just want to tell a little bit about what life was like in the mountains in those days and what the climbing was like. We're very active in the climbing scene, and... uh, we met some of our good friends through VOC. I met my wife there. And uh, just for people who don't know what things are like today, just what things were like back then, what the climbing was like, what the equipment was like, and the problems compared with today. There's no GPSs in those days. There's hardly even any maps. Uh, there's no Velcro. There's no no modern climbing equipment or anything. In the 1960s, you um, being a part of these group of Vancouver-based climbers explored and made first ascents on the coast mountains. Okay, I'd like the Rockies, uh, which are further east from here, of course. They were they were pretty well expo- explored by the 30s and and the 40s. Um, Mount Robson, which is the highest thing there, was climbed in 1912. The big thing in our part of the world here, Mount Waddington, wasn't even discovered really until 1925, and it wasn't climbed till much later. So when Dick and I came along, and others came along in the in the late 50s, early 60s, there's still all sorts of country up there which has never seen human footprints on it. So we, we had this huge playground to ourselves. There was no climbing courses. There was no instruction courses. So we were pretty much self-taught. That's how we had to do it. We started out fooling around the North Shore, on the North Shore hills and um, went on to harder stuff. 
I'm guessing you guys had to be prepared for any situation because you guys were the first people going there, right? Well, in many places we were. There's there's no there's no helicopters get to get you in. So there's nothing like heli skiing or anything. Not that we did that. There's no no radio communications, no satellite communications. So basically, if you were off there for three weeks, nobody knew where you were, and uh, you know if you didn't come out, you didn't come out. You know, so if you got in trouble, you're on your own. You know, a little bit pushing it, but that's how that's how we did it. And did you find a lot of pushback from parents? Or? Well, we were talking about that the other day, and uh, yeah. actually, both our parents—I don't think they really understood what we were, uh, what we were doing, particularly when we take off for summer, and then say, "Well, we'll see you in September" or something like that. Uh, maybe a letter or two in between, and that wow. was it. So I don't think they really understood what 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 we were doing fully, but they were cooperative. In terms of just learning, did you have any mentors that you guys really looked up to, people that you learned a lot of those basic skills from? We were both we both joined the BC Mountaineering Club, the BCMC, in our teens, early, mid-teens. And Dick's three years older than I am, so he joined before I did. And and there are people in there that are really good teaching young kids how to, how to do this stuff. But there's nothing formal, like there's no courses. You couldn't go sign up for a course in rock climbing or... You couldn't sign up for anything like that that we were interested in. So it's a learning by doing type thing, mm. which is often the best way of doing it. So tell me about some of the things that you love the most about climbing and why you think you have such an intense passion for it. We're both explorers, and we're not mountaineers as such. Well, we are, but we're not interested in necessarily the hardest route up a peak or the hardest route at Squamish or anything like that, but we're interested in new country, new uh, I said we're we're explorers, and we'll, that's that's really what drives us. What's uh, what's over the next hill? You know, uh, really, it's very much like the old saying: the bear went over the mountain to see what was there, and that was very much how we were. Because with poor maps, you didn't really know what was going on, so you could sort of make your own maps as you went and find your own way. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, we love about it, uh, above all, of course, and. Uh, I think I think there's also a bit of a spiritual dimension to things to many people uh, who are out in the backcountry. That basically, uh, I'm not a religious person, but if I was, the mountains would be my cathedral. And of course, it's the exercise and stuff like that. Being out with, with perhaps with a few friends that you really like and get along with, or being out with yourself by yourself for a long period of time. Uh, one of Dick's early trips when he was 19 or something, he was out for three weeks by himself, didn't see a soul longest I've been by myself is three weeks as well mm. so and are usually your guys expeditions three weeks long is that the average time frame no they go from now for those who were tantalized by that piece of information uh, where can we find the full interview well, you can find the full interview on the Arts Report Mixcloud page. And Glenn will be speaking next Wednesday, February the 15th, at the Freddie Wood Theater. And today we are actually going to be giving away two tickets to go see the UBC Climbing Show on February the 15th, 7.30 p.m. So the show is going to feature some incredible films, uh, part of the larger Vancouver International Uh, Mountain Film Festival and it's going to be a really great opportunity to learn more about what Glenn was talking about and just like outdoors climbing in general Uh, so if you are interested in snagging those two free tickets please DM the Arts Report (laughs) Uh, DM the Arts Report uh, at our Instagram is that when like you send a picture of your penis no No. like a dick message I'm pretty sure it's called direct message oh okay it has a negative connotation Content warning. <laughs> okay. That's, okay. that's a content warning. Not safe. We for published work. Discorder. Okay, so back- Nardwar had a show about that. I, I distinctly remember a guy talking about drinking urine to get the residual alcohol. Oh no! Okay. I have a name for this. Uh, Arts report goes rogue. Okay, that's that's a, that's a solid. That's a solid. Arts report goes rogue. Yeah. Um, so. If you're not weirded out by this conversation, <laughs> please, please do find us on Instagram. We would really like to promote that Instagram page. Mm-hmm. And you can find us with the handle at ArtsReportCITR, all lowercase, no spaces, at ArtsReportCITR. Um, so this is two free tickets. It'll be a fantastic way to spend a Wednesday evening when you're done classes or done work. You can come down and watch some great films. Um, so please do reach out to us um, at the Arts Report. And if with your interest letting us know that you're interested in snagging these tickets um but yeah 
So now if you if also if you weren't weirded out by that moment, we do have a pretty good party promo coming up. But first, some messages. <laughs> Discounts are on Commercial Drive and beyond at Pandora's Box Rehearsal Studio, Bomber Brewing, Stormcrow Tavern, People's Co-op Bookstore, Mintage, High Life Records and Music, Bone Rattle Music Limited, JQ Clothing Limited, The Rio Theater, the Vancouver Music Gallery, North Van, and Tapestry Music Limited in White Rock. What would we do without our friends? Well, when you were starting out as a writer, you were black impoverished, homosexual. You must have said to yourself, gee, how disadvantaged can I get? Well, no, I thought I hit the jackpot. Oh, great. (laughs) 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 If it's so outrageous, you could not go any further, you know. So you had to find a way to use it. Curated by Barbara Chirinos in partnership with Viff Van City Theatre, the annual Black History Month film series shines a spotlight on African North American film and history. This year's program encompasses music, political protest, spiritual, emotional enterprise, and endeavor. The centerpiece of Black History Month at Van City Theatre is the exclusive Vancouver premiere of the Academy Award-nominated documentary I Am Not Your Negro, screening from February 24th. Other highlights include Julie Dash's seminal Daughters of the Dust, the music films Molly Blues and Sign of the Times, and a new Canadian documentary about the untold history of black hockey players, Soul on Ice. Well, that's an interesting use of an Eldridge Cleaver title, Soul on Ice. Yeah. So, this party event, Christine, resident party animal that she is, can you tell us more? Of course I can. Um, So, another local event that's going to be happening one day before the UBC Climbing Show is Hashtag Save Love. Please explain. So the Hashtag Save Love Dance Party is put on by this group slash organization called the Decentralized Dance Party, or DDP for short. DDP was founded in 2009 by two Vancouverites, Gary and Tom. And since then, they've thrown a whopping total of 73 parties. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a pesticide. I, I just... Okay, wrong no? connotation, though. No? Okay. <laughs> they, they're a very uh, fun, loving, enigmatic group um, that has... that has thrown 73 parties all across North America and Europe. And I got to interview uh, some of the members of the current team. Uh, So we'll be playing that interview right now. I believe coincidentally we have it right here. My name is Gary, co-founder of Tom and Gary's Decentralized Dance Party. My name is Tom. I'm the leader of these dance parties. And my name is Chelsea, and I am the priestess of funk. Let's start from the very beginning. How did the Decentralized Dance Party begin? And what was the initial concept behind it? It began right here in Vancouver. We used to rip around at night on bicycles with a boombox strapped to the back, drinking beers and having the best times ever. And one night we had two boomboxes going. Uh, Our iPods died, so we tuned them into the same radio station and made this really cool distributed sound effect. So then had the idea... What if we got 100 boomboxes together and our own transmitter became our own radio station and through the most amazing parties the world had ever seen? Yeah, we founded it in 2009, and since then you guys have thrown parties all across North America and Europe. How did it escalate from being something that you guys just did at a local level to something that went international? Well, if you watch, we've made tons and tons of videos chronicling this thing. I'm a filmmaker myself. And, uh... Right at the end of the first video, it says, this is the party revolution. We're taking this thing worldwide, and that's always been the goal and the dream and the vision. And so, yeah, we blew it up as big as we could here in Vancouver. Went from 20 people to 20,000 within six months. That was during the Olympics, 2010. Then we did two tours across Canada, two tours across the States, a tour of Europe. And the objective is to have... Autonomous DDP party cells doing these all over the world. We'll do a world tour. Host a simultaneous global dance party. Have a night of global unity and win the Nobel Peace Prize for partying. Tom, can you describe a little bit more what the party manifesto is? The party manifesto is the proper way to party through our vision. Basically, you don't need drugs or alcohol or uh, posh clothing. And ultimately everyone is able to just be a member of this 
beautiful celebration of just having a good time. There's no need for talking. There's no need for anything. Just dancing and having a good time. And when you guys organize these, organize these huge parties, how do you guys um, ensure and promote party safety? Well, that boils down to the party manifesto once again. Like, initially when we started out doing these things, we were like, oh, we're going to have to hide from the cops. They're gonna, Everyone's going to try and shut us down. But when you're out there in crazy costumes and playing, like, fun, upbeat, non-aggressive music and just you got balloons and you're having an amazing time, like, what we found in the Olympics was the cops were like, like the parties were huge and they're like we just want to know where it's going we just want to help you out so that's kind of how we developed the party manifesto because you can't be promoting getting wasted and completely insane if we want this to keep going so our objective was always to uh, naturally break down people's inhibitions through what we call capital P partying and that's how we've always promoted it and it just creates this mob of joy that self-regulates and we've never had any problems with anything for seven and a half years like it's insane we've never we've never got permission for any of this still we've never had one fine or ticket ever <laughs> which is insane yeah that is really surprising because this is these are public parties on a mass scale that really anybody can attend right mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's amazing like i was in the middle of the Vancouver hockey riot in 2011 and it was crazy to see like you've I've heard of mob mentality before and groupthink and whatever but until you see it in person you don't really realize that it's a real thing like there were so many people there that were just like their eyes kind of went vacant and they were just gone like destroying the city not even thinking and, but at the same time the DDP is like the opposite of that it's like this construct constructive mob of happiness and it's just this infectious form of groupthink mob mentality that just transforms anyone. Tell me about the kind of music that you guys curate, I guess, for, for these parties. What, what do you know <laughs> about the music? The music is just something that anyone, everyone knows, heard before, song and dance, everyone sing-alongs, you name it, we do it. Could be deemed wedding reception music. Mm. Just upbeat, fun, happy stuff. You never want to play anything too aggressive. Or the mob could take a turn for the worse. So. Never any slayer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've had tons of these parties. have been thousands and thousands of people. The other unique thing is that, uh, so I have an iPod for the music and a microphone, and you can speak through all the boom boxes. So you can kind of direct the crowd, like direct them to keep out of the streets if the cops say we need everyone on the sidewalk mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. So you do have this unique means of crowd control. It's like nothing you've ever seen and yeah if you know what you're doing and you're confident and you play the right music then the mob can be controlled so when you guys did the north american tour of these parties um i also know that you expanded to do a european version um were, was the party culture quite different over there well that was a big question on our minds too before every tour it's funny people have said like oh you can't if you go to eastern canada they're crazy they'll like they're going to riot. When you go to the States, like, the cops are different. They're going to shut you down. Before the Euro Tour, everyone's like, oh, there's all this terrorism. You can't just march in here and throw a dance party. But we went all the way from London, England, down to Greece, and everywhere we went, it was just perfect. Like, one of the things we say is uh, music is the universal human language. Dancing is the universal human movement. And partying is the universal human identity. And, yeah, I, think I truly believe that, and everyone involved does. And once you see this thing in action, you'll see that this is the single best way to unite humanity is this kind of a party experience. So That's a little bit more of the focus of hashtag save love, right? This, the most recent upcoming party, February the 14th. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about why the title is hashtag save love? Yeah, I guess the genesis of that was... Two years ago, Admiral Fiesta, who leads the San Francisco party cell, he came up with this theme, which is Save Love. It's kind of taking back. I mean, when you normally think of Valentine's Day, you think of kind of like a boring, at least for me, <laughs> romantic candle at dinner or whatever. And I mean, I don't have a personal opinion really on Valentine's Day, but I know a lot of people 
hate it because I guess they've been spurned or they see it as this kind of like smarmy holiday. But so he had the idea that on Valentine's Day, really make it all about love and saving love. So the theme is superheroes, and the idea is to save love or reclaim it from the forces that have corrupted, co-opted, and commodified it. Basically, yeah, it's dressing up as a superhero and getting together to express what love means to you. And, I mean, our, our feeling is that partying itself is a unique form of love where you can meet a stranger in the street you've never met before and, like, when you're dressed like a, a party person and you got this music happening, you can have, like, like normally in society, you've got your social conditioning, everyone's kind of dressing the same, they're kind of afraid to express who they really are, but with the party you can just shatter all those inhibitions and barriers and have this instant joyful interaction between people so it's promoting all those sorts of things and logistically how have you guys raised the funding to um put this upcoming february 14th party on visa (laughs) (laughs) is this all seriously from your own pockets i cashed out a bitcoin yeah i mean we're another thing we should mention is we have a recently launched Patreon campaign, which we're hoping will help to finance this thing. It's basically crowdfunding, but ongoing, so when people donate every month, they donate like two bucks or five bucks or whatever. It's for any creative project that doesn't want to sell out or it needs a boost. And like, we've had offers over the years from like Coke Zero and all sorts of different things, MTV, all these institutions or brands that wanted to kind of piggyback on what we were doing but our ultimate objective has always been bringing people together and setting them free so if the party was branded we're like hey drink this coca-cola we love tom and gary love coca-cola or whatever then it immediately becomes like most other things in society which is like pushing some sort of extraneous product on people i think once you do that it loses a lot of the magic and the vision so we've always done crowdfunding as much as we can every tour we raised usually a thousand bucks in each city was the goal and it's been losing money from day one but definitely worth it Hmm. good investment in our future and adventure and yeah we're always on the lookout for anyone who understands and believes in this thing and wants to support it especially in this current climate of division and polarization and a lot of hate out there. I think this is one of the brightest lights and beacons of hope for uniting everybody regardless of political affiliation. Or what and now if people want to find out more about DDP um, and especially the hashtag save love uh, upcoming party on February the 14th where can they find that information? TheDDP.com and uh, you can check out our Facebook page, Tom and Gary's Decentralized Dance Party. And the event is posted on there. Great. And, and also, any final words about, personally, how you guys think DDP has transformed the way that you look at the world? It's given me more faith in humanity and more faith that if you put your mind to it, anything is possible. And if you follow your heart and soul, the universe will provide way to realize your dreams for me it's every night when we're done and we have people coming up to us thanking us uh, immensely for showing them one of the best nights of their lives after they were in a bar finished their beer paid their bill and came running after us because it looked fun and uh, I get that every night at the end of the party so keeps us going for sure and I am a relatively uh, new uh, convert from the past year and yeah I've always been kind of a an intellectual nerd and never really I was always uh, neurotic about movement and stuff like that dancing around other people and it's just it's simultaneously a a unified experience with everyone but you also can completely lose yourself and you lose self-consciousness and you can just really be embodied which is something I never thought I'd enjoy this much (laughs) join the party thanks Well, you heard it, people. Tune in, drop out, join the party. Hey, you know, it'll be a lot of fun with the DDT. Awesome. DDP. Oh! Oh, now that needs a content warning, I think, right?
the decentralized dance party happening hashtag save love february the 14th at oh yeah yes <laughs> uh, we're just gonna take a short commercial break but i wanted to get a few jokes in there but from the disapproving look i think that might be a bad idea considering we've already got a content warning I think this I'm going is for a record the arts report please Stick around, because we'll be back with several more reviews. With, yes, a great deal of reviews for some great media. Hold on a minute. Are you interested in indigenous issues? Are you down with decolonization? Do you have something to say? Or have a topic to share? We have just the thing. Join UBC's first ever Indigenous Radio Collective. We're a team of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. I'm Niska from my mother. From the Taltan Territory. I'm a settler from Washington State. I'm from the Qualcomm and Musqueam First Nations. I am Quicho Indigenous from Saraguro, Ecuador. We broadcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded land of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Whatever you want to talk about, we're into it. Everyone is welcome, no experience necessary. Unceded Airwaves airs every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. And we meet every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. to plan our upcoming shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Unsealed Airwaves. We want to hear your story. Hey, 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 what's up? Hey, hey, what's up? What's wrong? What's wrong? Hey, what's wrong? Catch February fireworks. I'm Richard Hart. And I'm Gianna Hero. Your evenings will explode and you'll meet the Hollywood super agent responsible. Plus tips on how to lose weight and get a raise. And the unique lifestyle of single fathers in the Bay Area. But how close is a movie to the real thing? I'm Gianna Hero. And I'm Richard Hart. Coping with this latest twist to the changing American family. Brainwashed by the Moonies and turned into a zombie for their cult. Learn how he broke the spell and escaped. Why? Because he's a star maker. I'm Gianna Hero. And I'm Richard Hart. Secret deals can make or break a Hollywood career. Daniel. There's only one way that old clunker is going to make you feel good again. Donate it to Bullying Canada. Check this out. Free towing or pickup of your old vehicle. A tax-deductible receipt. And a super easy process. Online at bullyingcanada.ca. Get rid of that old vehicle and feel good about supporting real solutions for change in your community. Donate your old or used vehicle to Bullying Canada today. Full details online at bullyingcanada.ca. Now, I'm told we have a book review coming up. Yeah, we do. Of what particular volume? Uh, well, it's <clears throat> this book called Cubic Red, um, written by Simon Roy. And uh, should I just go for it? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, it's not th exactly the most happy book um, because it compares The Shining to his family's intergenerational, I would say past, but it's more like horror. Did his dad attack somebody with an axe? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Really? No, no, not not his dad. I should clarify. It was his uh, grandfather on his mother's side. So basically, um, when his mother was like seven, um, uh, she and her sister were like playing outside. Uh, she got a cut, so she ran inside and then just walked into um, his, <clears throat> or sorry, her, mo her, her mother, her mother, her, her mother getting kind of her head chopped in with an axe by her father. Good Christ. Which obviously freaked them out, traumatized them for oh, you think? for the rest of their lives. Um, basically, so that happened in 1942. Okay. And um, that's followed her for all her life. Um, her sister disappeared, by the way, when she was 14, so we have no idea what happens to her. Um, but her mother, whose name is Danielle... The, sorry, the mother, whose name is Danielle, um, she ended up committing suicide, um, like, and this was after um, she had a child, which is Simon Roy. Can't believe he's still living, but um, basically, the whole point of the book is kind of just to say uh, he makes the point that like horror is everywhere because there's this chapter um, that he. Uh, basically points out like oh look there's there's a horror in in fictional stories like baba yaga and there's all these like tropes um 
evil stepmother, wicked witch, all of these. And then we look at real life psychopaths like Ed Gein, who apparently, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> warning. Yeah. We already have a content warning I'm for gonna, dick I'm message, gonna say, Ed Gein deserves I'm, it. I'm going to say this. Um, if you don't know who Ed Gein is, just Google him. You'll understand why there's a content warning. Um, and then. Very he, creative maker of lampshades. <laughs> And other things, like skin. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, basically, horror, you can't escape it. So, he makes, he has this brilliant, he has this brilliant line where he says something like, um, my only choice is to walk uh, with open wounds, to march obstinately towards the light, um, you know, kind of illuminated by a magnificent cubic red, hence the title. Uh, he means... Because he can't escape horror, he might as well just face up to it. Is it Kubrick or Kubrick? Kubrick, because it's Stanley Kubrick uh, okay. who yeah. directed The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many things that I want to say about this review because um, there, it's just so it, – it started out really boring um, because I didn't understand why there were so many random stories. Um, you know, it just seemed like he didn't – he was just putting them in there. It, it seemed – one of the articles that I read about it was like um, he indulges in a lot of self-reflection, and I agreed. But once you get to the point and you read back the book a second time and then a third time, each time you pick up on new hints um, of what was to come and you understand his thought process while he was writing the book, which I think is really exciting because uh, just simply like understanding a thought process from an author um and it just it's that process itself is is exciting to me so i thoroughly enjoyed it um you know after the first time um in what capacity would you recommend it i would recommend it to people who well personally like i'm a person who can't watch horror but i can read about it so i would recommend it to those kinds of people um i like say if you're a stephen king fan like if you read like the book the shining or if you're like uh, a horror movie fan in general would you say that this is a good book to pick up just because of the perspective it shares i've never read stephen king so i can't really really, no 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 but um it i would i would recommend it i would recommend it um but it's like it's it's like it's like a thing. It's, there's not very much action in it is what i would say there's there's he, he describes a lot of these horrific scenes but it also you struggles at times to find the point in them and because you're not really watching it it's not very like it can be a little bit like why is this happening but that's also another point that he makes it's like he kind of hypothesizes that Stanley Kubrick had the idea of um, making The Shining so banal. Uh, banal? He th- banal, yeah, I guess. I don't yeah. know how to pronounce that, sorry. Um, no problem. And because The Shining is very, like, in your face, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot of thought was put into it. But then again, a lot of horror is banal, whether in real life or banal. fiction. Banal. <laughs> okay. Banal. <laughs> Um, so there are two chapters, uh, that he gives examples. So one of the chapters, he lists just a bunch of school shootings in the past. Um, and then another chapter is a bunch of examples of domestic violence ending with his own family's, you know, past. Um, and it's just like, maybe, maybe evil isn't isn't deep maybe there's no meaning to that as depressing as that sounds but like he thinks that evil is just evil is inherent to humans yeah well and yeah, the banality and, and of evil is a recognized concept that's uh hannah arendt on adolf eichmann hannah arendt uh eichmann in jerusalem is a book written in 62 when uh Israeli authorities found Adolf Eichmann, who was basically responsible for the allotment of Jews to concentration camps. Okay. Uh, and Arend, during the trial, she covered it as a journalist, I believe as a journalist, and she uh, said that of Eichmann, he was not a villain. He was stupid, unimaginative, just, just a pencil neck. He didn't 
really have he probably was malicious and bigoted but he wasn't any more so really he's just a guy who did his job and that job just happened to be allotting the mass murder of various pe- of millions of people mm-hmm. and that thing was um uh, what she called the banality of evil would you say that applies here yeah i would say that it applies here um and yeah i mean i don't really know what else to um it's not it's not a light read it's not a light read do not expect okay so so if if you're thinking a substitute for like i don't know your usual harlequin romance read probably not kubrick read you know if you're if you're looking for a book that uh you want to read like you know while you're on the bus uh going home from school like look for a romantic comedy or something like look for a lighter book uh this will give you nightmares and uh this will kind of spur your imagination to think things before you go to sleep so don't read this before you go to sleep okay so this is some dark stuff yeah well in keeping with that i gotta you have anything more to say about it um i do have one last thing to say about it because um even though it is dark um the point that he makes which I already mentioned before that um, that horror is uh, kind of unavoidable. It kind of makes me less scared of scary things, if that makes sense. Because he writes about it in such a matter-of-fact way um, that you're just like, well, if if horror, if scary things are boring, then they're kind of just there, and you don't have to be scared of them. It's it kind of it kind of um, makes your mind think of it in a different way, which I actually think could help. Kind of reminds me of Crimson Peak, actually. And the Benicio Del Toro movie, one of recent, like Tom Hiddleston was in it, uh, who was Alice in Wonderland, Mia, Mia Wasikowska, mm-hmm. Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Like, uh, and the point of that, as with a lot of Benicio, as no, Guillermo, Guillermo Del Toro, not Benicio Love Del that Toro. Name. It's a great name, yeah? Yeah. Guillermo Del Toro. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the point of that, as with many of his other movies, really, like even when you think about it, Pan's Labyrinth, like nothing's scarier. Like there's ghosts in this movie, like that are, like like the kid in like I think it was Kronos. He's like bleeding from his head, or is that the Devil's Backbone? But one of them, like he's bleeding from his head. He's a ghost kid. This is in a different movie, guys. But like the point of that movie is you should be scared of literally everyone else who doesn't have a hole in their head. Like just nothing scarier than just people to Guillermo del Toro. And this is a man who wrote Hellboy, who has directed Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, and The Devil's Backbone. Okay. Well, maybe he could be making the point that, like, people who seem normal um, must be hiding something. Because other yeah. because other beasts that, like, that wear their crazy, wear their scary on the outside, they have nothing to hide anymore because everything that is the scariest is already out there for everyone to see. So you have nothing to be afraid of. It's he, already there. He was a quiet man. <laughs> yeah. You should always Ed Gein must have been quite a nice neighbor, you know, aside from the smell. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's as, as déclassé as it is, there's a few Ed Gein jokes out there. Americans. I, yeah, I blame American Psycho, but not really. I mean, my, re- my review here is of something that is probably equally as blood-soaked, but that's not what you think about it. My review is Corleone. Okay, so do you want to just transition into that? Shall we do that? Let's do it rather smoothly. Yeah. Are you sure? Have we gotten this one underway? Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. This is a little meta. Okay. So Corleone, you seen The Godfather? Mm, no. Uh, you seen Shakespeare? I guess so. Like which one? Um, a very bad version of Othello. Othello. Okay. Actually, that was that was probably not one of the ones that was in this. But basically, what happened is they did The Godfather as a Shakespeare play. Okay. Which works pretty well. The Godfather 1 is the one they're doing, like, uh, as a Shakespeare play. And I know that movie really well because me and my dad have watched that movie a lot. Like, uh, frequently, like, I say almost on a yearly basis since I was about, I think, in grade 9. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really good movie. It is probably, like, the, people say The Godfather is one of the best movies ever made. Like, yeah. Probably. Like, it's <laughs> it, it, it's really good. I can't, I can't retort because I have... No idea of it. Oh, like it's it's so it's it's a movie. You know what it's about at least. Like you've probably seen a parody of it somewhere or something. Like. No, honestly. Well, no. don't, don't take what it is. Don't take 
Don't do the the Marlon Brando in that movie spoke with that voice, and that's everybody parodies that. Okay. And uh, in this one, they actually don't do that. Uh, the actress playing uh, that character, playing Vito, uh, who is, I believe. She's yeah. She she's um appropriate. A lot of the great thing here was a casting. Everyone was this is all female cast by the way, but everyone looked the part and everybody was able to act the part very well. Mm-hmm. And like the Nicola Lipman, who played Vito Corleone, um, really did show like because everybody when they're thinking be Vito Corleone they do the accent. She did show like this character is also like is a probably long suffering patriarch. Like he's the head of this mob family. And they had him played. They didn't play him as King Lear. They maybe did a little bit, but not a lot. The funny thing is that so spoilers to whoever hasn't seen The Godfather will ensue. Um, they do reference it through scenes in The Godfather when Sonny dies, and Sonny's played by James Caan in the original Godfather, and he gets shot to pieces. <laughs> that they the squibs, which is a little blood capsules they use to simulate gunshots in movies they Mm -hmm. stick them under your shirt james con has a record for that Mm -hmm. because his character gets shot with a bunch of tommy guns from Mm -hmm. several different angles and um that's a very influential scene and in this one that he gets stabbed by a bunch of people like julius caesar and his ghost appears to michael who al pacino plays in the movie who's sort of the main character like the ghost of hamlet's father Mm mm-hmm and there's also, like, there are funny things, like, there's this henchman named Luca Braze, who's there earlier in the movie. They play him as Dogberry from Much Ado About Nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, just made of malaprops and stumbling. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the, there are other allusions to it, but, like, it, it is really hard to keep track of them because it's a really well-paced and well-put-together thing. It's at the Pacific Theater, and it's running, I believe, another few days. And I highly recommend going to see it. Just, it's a very interesting production. It is a, it's a good, it's a good bit of work. Yeah. Well, what about people who didn't like The Godfather? Do you think they would like this? If you haven't seen The Godfather and you see this, um, you're gonna miss a few of the jokes. Uh, one big thing is oranges. In The Godfather, oranges are a symbol of death. Uh, if you see oranges, somebody's gonna die or is about to. Like Vito Corleone gets shot while. Um, getting oranges he survives that but he's also eating an orange right before he has a heart his the heart attack that kills him it's gonna go on a tangent why do why does fruit have such a bad reputation because it's like you bite the apple and then snow white die or not dies but like goes unconscious and then like this orange is now like a symbol of i blame eve she owes us a rib. That's true. That's true (laughs) that's a I, i i honestly actually don't know why oranges were that symbolic i think um, actually, I, I would have no idea. I do know that oranges would have been, like, this is the 40s, so oranges to people in living memory probably would have been very rare. Mm-hmm. Like, Vito Corleone did most of his work, and this is in The Godfather Part Two, like, around, like, before the First World War. He's, he's up there in years, so he would probably remember a time when oranges would have been very rare. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if that was part of it. I actually don't know. They don't really explain it. It's, it's just a visual theme. And they do change this from the language of film to the language of theater, in my opinion, very well, or at least as well as they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, if I had one problem with it, it's Tom Hagen, who is my favorite character from The Godfather, played by a very great actor, Robert Duvall. Uh, and Tom Hagen is, a, is this character, is a very interesting character, because he's the consigliere, he's the lawyer to the Corleones. But he's not Italian, he's German-Irish, and he was adopted. So he can never be a full part of the mob. Like, they ask him to sit outside when they have meetings. But he's their <laughs> lawyer, and he's, like, their... Really, he is the most competent and level-headed person in the family, and he's just just a very clever and really interesting, well-played character. They really reduce his role. And I understand why they did it, because they had to. It is not really Tom's movie, Godfather 1. Like, Godfather 1 is uh, Sonny's movie up to a point, and then Michael's movie. And it's really Michael's, and Vito's movie somewhat, but really not as much. Like, it's Vito's movie because it's Marlon Brando, and he dominates every scene that he's in because he's Marlon frickin' Brando. And in this one, they, they do show it really as Michael's movie. And the thing I realized, too, about The Godfather is that this is a movie about how you end up becoming your dad. Oh. Sort of, you know. It, it's, it's, it's sort of like that, which is something I actually wouldn't have gotten from watching the movie. That's psychological. Because the movie, and this ends on a different tone. This ends on a slightly different, but um, like just just short of where the movie ends. And it ends on the same line. It ends on 
more or less, it ends on the same moment, but it ends on a different context to that moment. And it, I would recommend, if, if you like The Godfather, see this. Like, if you're a big fan of The Godfather, if you haven't seen The Godfather, see The Godfather, then see this. Like, just, The Godfather's a classic. Like, there's so many references and jokes that hinge on knowing what The, the Godfather, or at least knowing Brando in it, that you really should probably see it. At least Godfather 1. The third one, it, no, no. Two is good. Two is also very good. The third one, yeah, it's awkward. It's really awkward. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to end, awkwardly. Although, no, I will say this, yeah, Pacific Theater, it should still be running. Check out Corleone, because Corleone, it, it, it is a, it feels like a quick sit. It's 80 minutes, no intermission. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised by the fact, again, they did cut out, like, Tom from a lot of the excise Tom from a lot of the movie they cut out a few things but like they do keep it a really good trim 80 minutes and it, it, it especially if you're a fan of Shakespeare too by God see this like if you're a fan of Shakespeare and you haven't seen The Godfather just go and see this because you, there are so many little references in here that really do appeal to that okay and now I believe you did review a show as well I did um this show was called The Audience and um th- basically that's just awkward why is it? Say, a little bit. Did you say awkward? Is it? Yeah. Why? Is, is he? The audience, like, we now present the audience. And they just wheel a mirror on stage. No, no they didn't do okay. that. Okay, so uh, the audience, it's kind of just like an audience of one because um, it, it's just, it follows Queen Elizabeth II through the years, um, interviewing 12 different prime ministers. Um, ah. I thought you knew this. I did know this, but they don't. Okay. Anyway, um, and <clears throat> so basically the audience would be the queen. And um, the whole point, I guess, is to keep up, keep her up to date with current affairs. Um, and the interviews actually ended up being more like therapy sessions because they get, um, a lot of them get a lot more personal <laughs> than hmm. political, um, I would say. Uh, for example, the first one, um, when she meets with uh, John Major, um, he reveals that he just wants to be ordinary. He doesn't like the spotlight, and he's upset by what the papers say. Um, and then there's another kind of polar opposite character. Um, I, I forget his name, but he's the prime minister that comes after John Major, and he's very boisterous, and Anthony he's very Eden? arrogant. Anthony what? Eden? Might be. I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't recall. Um, but yeah, uh, he's, he, he's, uh, kind of at one point belittles the job of the queen by yeah. saying like, oh, um, the, the sovereign's never suppo- not supposed to ask that many questions, even though she's the one supposed to be giving the interview. Um, because the whole point is like, he wants to talk more. So we're just mm. like, okay, well, you're not a very pleasant dude. Um, Anthony Eden wasn't. <laughs> And the but the point that he makes, um, it at first it's funny because um, it's just he's so blatantly arrogant. But at the end, uh, it moves from being just a witty play to kind of a more serious play by kind of showing the queen's inner struggle um, of not being able to dissent because uh, the, her job as a royal is kind of to give advice to kind of warn people of warn the prime minister of things that she finds um that 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 could be problematic but she can't actually change anyone's minds and she can't actually make any official decisions and uh this actually uh kind of gives her a little bit of like inner turmoil just because like she can't speak up yet she's supposed to be this like uber powerful at this uber powerful position so at one point she um makes this quote that's just like um oh what will they i'm i'm paraphrasing here but she says what will they think of me um oh yeah she was just a postage stamp with a voice or something like that and then i was just like well it's so poignant it's so poignant so i thought uh this play was kind of uh it, it was I think it was relatively smooth in its transition from um, wittiness to kind of seriousness because there were hints of frustration uh, in the first act and then in the second act it was very clear. Like there was one scene um, where 
she was talking with one of the prime ministers about the Suez crisis, and then that would um, be Eden. Yeah. So um, so then he wouldn't have been the second one because he wouldn't have been okay. No. Um, and he, he's saying how um, yeah, we need to do airstrikes immediately, and she's saying, well, Listen. that's, <laughs> and she's saying. But that's going to hurt our reputation, and that's going to, you know, damage the civilian population. Um, but she can't do anything about it. So, uh, yeah, you you really empathize with the queen. Um, and also, at, but... It, and then they called Lester Pearson. <laughs> but um, at the very end, it does... She does kind of change her tone because uh, she ends the play on a more optimistic tone. She's just like... Well, uh, if you want to know how this country has survived, look to its prime ministers, and then the audience kind of just goes like, aww. Um, but she says that, I should mention, to her younger self, which I thought was her daughter um, for most of the play. Um, there are scenes, in between some scenes, uh, she's shown talking to this like little child, and then uh, it isn't very clear who she is, but apparently I found, found out later she was her younger self, and she gives advice to her. So um, okay, that's handy. Yeah, yeah. So this is handy. the Doctor Who timeline. I guess so. <laughs> so who would you recommend this to? Would you recommend seeing this? Honestly, I would, because um, with a with a play that's just twelve interviews, it's just talking. It's talking for this play was actually three hours. This is three hours. This long. was three okay, hours. So like it's pretty long. It's I pretty almost. I, I was getting a little bit drowsy by the end, but um, mm, yeah. I think that it definitely kept your attention mostly because of the strong personalities that uh, each prime minister was. One of them was Margaret Thatcher, and then she gave <laughs> <laughs> she gave she gave the best mock bow thing. Uh, I think she Curtsy, tried to. Like... No, she just tried to like kneel or something, and then it just looked so awkward, and yeah. it was so great because she was obviously, you know, like didn't want to respect the the queen and very like uptight. Apparently, she once spanked Christopher Hitchens too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, oh, what this is reminding me of is the Butler. Did you see that movie with? Uh... No. I think it was. I want to say uh, Lee Daniels directed it, and it's like all the different. Presidents are played by, like, Robin Williams played Dwight Eisenhower. Oh. That's, John Cusack played Richard Nixon. <laughs> I just remember seeing the trailer for that. I'm like, what? Did, is it? Is it? Is, is that Cusack playing Nixon? To be fair, Nixon was the mopiest president. <laughs> so so you'd recommend seeing this if you're like, like, if, if you can name the, if okay, you can I'm name all say, of the prime ministers, I, I, see this? No. No, I knew n- basically none of the prime ministers, almost none of the prime ministers. I thought that that would be um, kind of hinder my enjoyment of it, but it really didn't because you. what's great about this play is that it kind of portrayed them as uh, more with like more humanity, you know, like you can just kind of relate to them. Um, they kind of show their insecurities and whatever. You just see them as people rather than just like political figures and uh you see their like separate personalities so i would recommend it anything else um just go see it because it's interesting because the that show is about the humanity of great figures Mm -hmm. and this show is about this next show that i covered i covered Mm -hmm. it yesterday actually is about the grandiosity of well really small figures just like you and i 42nd street Okay. Which is interesting because this is a musical made in the 80s, cobbled together from like, material from the 30s and based on a movie that Busby Berkeley choreographed. If you want to check out like a, a movie that's easy on the eyes, check out that movie, the original 42nd Street. Ginger Rogers is in it. If, you, if you're a, as big a fan as, of Astaire and Rogers as I am, that's a treat. And this is about this uh, woman named Peggy Sawyer who comes from Allentown, which I only know from the Billy Joel song, mm-hmm. which made it look kind of like crap, but this is before that. So... Um, and the show, like, it's, it's set in the 30s, so there are a little... And th- I want to say right off the bat, this is a small stage production that is doing a big-time Broadway aesthetic. There were some problems with that, but mostly it succeeded disturbingly well. Like, the acting was very good. Like, the, the, the everyone here was very well choreographed, like, seamlessly so. I don't think there was, like, there were a lot of jokes about characters being out of step, and you have to be perfectly in step to begin with to make those, right? 
And, like, the, there was uh, the costumes. Okay, I will say this. The pants didn't match the suits a lot of the time, but, like, you, you got to do what you got to do. Like, they had some pinstripes. They had high collars. They had the, they had the 30s thing down. It's and they had the voices. Yeah, they had the voices down. See? Like this, you know? I'm not doing a Howard Cosell impression right now, but it kind of sounds like it. Uh, he wasn't in the 30s. Was he alive in the 30s? I don't know. I, I don't care, really. Um... And the, so, like, the cast was generally, like, it was, like, very solid. The one problem with it, though, throughout was the singing, because they weren't mic'd. So, that would have normally been fine in the space, but the band has brass. So, the band, like, just sort of drowned them out on a few songs, which was a shame, because there are some great songs in this. There's, was there tuba in there? I think, th- no, I don't think there was. There was a, there was a trump. There was a saxophone, though, like... Oh. That, I, 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 so it would, would have just been loud and overpowering. Yeah, I guess. A, a little bit. Like they, <laughs> they did mention they had a cue and afterwards. They did mention that they only rehearsed with the piano. Oh, which would have been made like a much later score. But it, it but they're true in a Broadway show aesthetic, so they scaled down a band basically. And uh, they do have some great songs in this, like uh, the titular song. Uh, uh, well, Broadway Babies, that's a great song. And our Broadway Babies don't sleep tight. It's early until it's early in the morning. Or one of my personal favorites is You're Getting to Be a Habit with Me. You know that one? So Frank Sinatra did a great version of it. That's It's on Songs for Swingin' Lovers. Highly recommend it. That one was in, I did not know that was in 42nd Street, too. So that was, the, the songs were very enjoyable to me because I like this kind of music. And, like, the lines, the performances in general were very, were, were, were pretty solid. Like, um, there was a good line that I thought was, like, that because everybody in it, this is the depression. So all the show people are really happy to get jobs. Totally unlike today. <laughs> um, but it's like, great. Well, come on, you got to shape up. They've got four forty a seat out there. Like, it's $4.40 for a seat at a mm. Broadway show. You're like, okay, mm. well, that's a bit of a, well, that's, you know, obviously change. And then they were like, uh, come on, you got to rehearse. We're paying you $32 a week. I'm like, okay, that's still there. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, that's still accurate. But, uh, like, it was little lines like that that are really enjoyable. And there's, uh, like, the two uh, actors who I really uh, liked was um, Julian, was Matthias Falvi. Falvi? I'm sorry if I got that in- incorrect. He did say it to me. Who played Julian Marsh, who's producing the show. This guy looks astoundingly like Matt Dillon. It's it's really amazing. And it, he sort of he sort of acts like him, too. I don't know if this is because I just I saw Drugstore Cowboy the other week. I watched Drugstore Cowboy the other week, but dr- I watched Drugstore Cowboy the other week. But, like, he, uh, yeah. Like, he, he, he just, he, he was doing this really sort of punchy thing, like, Hard-driving Broadway producer. I don't want your best. I want better than your best. I want pure, unadulterated brilliance. And you know, he gets it in the climax of the show. And the other one was um, Julian Gallipo, who played Billy Lawler. And this guy can sing. Wow. Like, there were a few times when he they, they deliberately, like, he holds this high note so far. And his character, like, they make a couple jokes about him being a tenor. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if, you, if you've ever worked in a show, like, just tenors man but the the the, the, he was good about that and this i feel like there are a lot a lot of inside jokes that i'm not getting right now this is that's for all the theater people (laughs) in in the audience like i don't know i'm 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 a baritone so maybe i'm just salty but (laughs) could be the the um i also can't sing so there's that but uh the uh the julian gallopo sorry who plays billy lawler he has an interesting look to him like he's like I want to see this guy play like who is the 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 guy in Frozen that Anna was gonna marry and then he turned out to be like a villain. I didn't see Frozen. Really? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get on the bandwagon. My 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 niece loves that movie. I... <laughs> Everyone's niece loves that movie. Oh, yeah. Like when was that movie made? Like it came out what five years ago? It feels two like at it... most. I don't think so. I was. At least three years ago. Three or four. Maybe three. Maybe three. Anyways, um, after years, my niece still has, like, a bunch of, like, she has, I think she has, like, a pillow of it, and she still talks about it, and, well, she's, like, five. But still, um, yeah, it's just, everyone's niece loves it. Well, I got got my niece a Frozen flipbook for for, for Christmas, so there was that. But, like, uh, that character, that particular kind of character, because he's got this very clean-cut look. And, but he also, like, there were a few times, and this is partially the character, because the character he's playing, 
I like the resolution of this play because it's sort of a love triangle, but not really. And leaning more into the not really, which I... What does that even mean? Well, it's sort of like the geometry of love is off key. I don't know. No, no, seriously, so what happens is uh, Peggy is sort of like Billy is really going for, for Peggy and he's like the <coughs> juvenile. So he's playing the young man in the show, young male lead. He's not a bad guy in the show. He's very pushy and very sort of, like, but he's not terrible. There is a bombastic diva in the movie who is uh, Dorothy Brock played by Stephanie Wong and she was she was good she was very good because her character gets the financing for the show from her sugar daddy and then her character has a her own subplot I don't want to spoil all the show Mm -hmm. but basically what it ends with is Julian Marsh has a small romance with Peggy because he kisses her to get her to act better basically you know as you do Mm. Um, it's charming in the actual production even though it did sort okay, of okay i can relate to that because like some things are charming in context and i've had an argument yeah. like this with another person and did not end well so yeah, you know, yeah. I it's, can it's, it's like how you can it. like edit the trailer for pretty in pink to make andrew mccarthy's character look like a serial killer again haven't seen that movie but you know Although, at this point redundant you, you could find that on online it's got like the creepy music set to it it doesn't help that andrew mccarthy's got like this really intense stare for most of the movie like He's, he, he, Andrew McCarthy plays creepy well, uh, but, uh, this, uh, but Julian Gallopo, I really want to see him play like a, uh, a snaky sort of villain character. Cause he seems like the, the way he was playing Billy a little bit at first. And I think this is partially of how Billy's written is to be kind of like kind of pushy, not necessarily endearingly so, but not a bad person. Mm-hmm. I really want to see him play that kind of character. Cause he seems like he could really knock that out of the park. Okay. I'm not intimating that he's like that in real life, but I'm just saying, like, somebody has a certain stage persona, you mm-hmm. know? So he does something really well. For example... Well, that could be his niche, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, we, we all we all sort of have one. Like, for example, my niche, I, I tend to get cast as rather loud characters. I, I don't know why, but apparently... Yeah. And that's... This is this is a good show. This is a, this is a very good show, I think, to see, because it's being put on by Langara College at Studio 58. <laughs> And it's only going to be running for a little bit longer. So I recommend checking it out. I recommend – I do recommend seeing this just to see because these people are going to be professional actors. They're in training for that. And you can really see that. You can see that they are – like they devoted a lot of time to this. Like this is this was done in a month. And if you see this show, you're going to have your jaw on the floor like how did they do that in a month? Okay. So basically your point is this ain't a high school production – no, <laughs> no, not really. I think I've seen that movie too. Uh, but uh, the, the actually the choreographer of this is a former Rockette. Hmm. And, yeah, and apparently the Rockettes have fun pants Friday. I, I'm just very entertained <laughs> by that. But Julie Tamino is her name. And like I know the Rockette training makes Black Swan look like summer camp. So the, like it's pretty. That's, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. Brockette training is intense. Like, it's it's just, you know, so many high kicks. <laughs> so many high I wouldn't know, but, like... But do high kicks make you hallucinate, though? Well, you know, after a while. <laughs> but the, 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 the point is that this show was, like, they do a lot of different styles of dance. They do a lot of tap, too. Which, uh, you know, that that's that's rough rehearsal. You know, sometimes, especially... Uh, they do do tap in their course, too, because these guys are people who are working in acting and the, yeah yeah i'd say i'd say go see it it's a good show okay do you would you would you go see this based on that i would go see it i mean you're selling it pretty well yeah. sell harder a b c always be closing no. <laughs> oh, but yeah. like yeah, yeah so like um i think that i think that about wraps it up doesn't it wow okay I'm trying to remember because I was thinking about this after the Corleone thing. There was a line in Corleone and I can't remember it. Like it's it's one of the line that probably best sums it up. Oh yeah, my father, who did not insult, excuse, made him an offer that he could not refuse. Mm-hmm. That's one of the lines. I made him an offer he can't refuse. That's mm-hmm. this from The Godfather. Okay. Yeah, I I just thought mm-hmm. of that line. I should have thought of that during the Corleone review. Okay, it probably would have made more sense in context, but probably know. would have. You know, so so would many of my remarks, but they don't end that way. Like the the random digression about Batman v Superman. Well, I I just found that you go on like a lot of a lot of tangents talking about like actors and like movies that I haven't seen, so I can't I can't really, you know, play off of that. Yeah, it's just... 
Like, I can try. I can try. I, I, can I am sorry about that. Stuff. You know, we all, we all have we all have a heroic flaw. No, it's okay. Actually, the other day I only watched the Breakfast Breakfast Club for the first time. So oh, that's a good book. Yeah. Yeah. What'd yeah. you think of it? Um, it we was do the great. last minute review of the Breakfast Club. <laughs> well, I don't know how much time we have left, but you know, it was a uh, great movie. We're a little over. But, oh uh, well. <laughs> I don't know. The Breakfast Club was a great movie. Um, I, you know, it seemed very slow and I was a little bit confused in the beginning because, well, for most of the movie, because it was just this one guy being, you know, it would need a content warning for what he was being, but. Uh, antisocial. Sure. Antisocial, if you want to go that route. Um, yeah. And yeah. then he was kind of just bothering everybody. And then I was just like, what's the point of this? But then um, once they got into their confession circle, I. Well, actually, I was watching the movie with a friend, and then I had to leave then because, you know, I had to go do something. But it was it was at that confession circle time, and and it, it, that was the moment that um, things started to get good, and then you start to get all these, like, truths out of these people. And I was like... Did you watch the TV so edit of the movie, or did they smoke weed before that? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay, so that that's the full edit of the movie, yeah, which... Okay. In the TV edit, they just cut that out entirely. So suddenly, they're going from Bender annoying everyone to them sitting in the confession circle. Yeah, that wouldn't make really sense. Random. Because no, this was like drug induced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which which does happen when you're sitting around a bunch of high people. Yeah, it, yeah, just... and also uh, once they reveal what actually happened to them, then you understand. Like, you understand. Uh, it just I don't know. It's very good. Yeah, like there's there's something like that. Oh, and I finally get the ending reference of the the, the, the fist in the air. And... I did that. I did that. Did I, did, have I told this story on air before? I did that on my last day of high school. I did. You and, would. Because here's the thing. Uh, I kind of hijacked the announcements at the end to give this sort of spiel. <coughs> and then because I have the soundtrack to The Breakfast Club on my phone, mm-hmm. hooked my phone up to the PA system and played Don't You Forget About Me, put on, like I have this black overcoat for my for dress occasions. Like, shrugged that on over my shirt, stepped out of the office, boom. <laughs> like, fist right in the air. No, that would be fun. Or just just for the benefit of it. And I, I, I do like that song. I like Simple Minds a lot. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I look back on that moment like, that's a fun bit of intertextuality. Mm-hmm. Cool. I gotta say. So, all in all, you'd say watch The Breakfast Club. Watch The Breakfast Club. Watch that's, The Breakfast that was, Club. That wasn't a planned review, but watch it. Watch The Breakfast Club. Read Kubrick Red. Uh, go see the audience, mm-hmm. Corleone, 42nd Street, check mm-hmm. out Vancouver Mountain Film Festival. Just carve out a bunch of time in your schedule because yeah. these, you have to go And see hey, this. if DDP's in town, I don't know, score some pretty potent stuff and head on down the block for a dis- dislo- dislocated party. Was that it? Seems groovy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, signing off from unceded Musqueam territory, I'm Jake Clark. I'm Jessica Lynn. All right. Cheers, folks. Volunteer opportunity that fits your schedule? 